You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. It's all about seafood today on Spot On, and we're going to, uh, you know, talk about what is, you know, sustainable seafood really, really mean to us. So I brought in an expert. It's Chef, I guess, Barton Seavey. I'm still going to call you Chef because, well, the man does everything, all right? He is the world's leading sustainable seafood expert and educator, and he had a restaurant. He was an award-winning top leading chef uh, at a seafood restaurant, I love this, called Hook and Tackle Box in Washington, D.C. You were named by Esquire Magazine of Chef of the Year. Oh my goodness, your mother is so proud. And but he's now into this whole sustainability and education. And he's a director of the Sustainable Seafood and Health Initiative at Harvard School of Public Health. So, you know, you went from chef to kitchen, probably still in the kitchen. I can tell by, you know, we're doing this on Zoom. And my goodness, this is gorgeous kitchen you have here. All about sustainable seafood. Obviously trained quite well as a chef. You got all these accolades, but Okay, so tell me, how did you get into this whole world of seafood sustainability? Oh, boy. Well, thank you, first and foremost, for having me on and, and for, <laughs> oh, yes. for addressing this topic that I've really dedicated my entire career to. So I, I so very much appreciate that. Uh, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., in a very multi-ethnic neighborhood uh, called Mount Pleasant, which was a lot of Eritrean, Ethiopian, Guatemalan, and El Salvadorian peoples. And they were all fleeing civil unrest in their countries and, and come to America. And so uh, the power of food was so on display for me for my entire life. Uh, my friends, you know, this was how they identified themselves in their new country. This is how they found new pathways. And we are never more ourselves than when we sit to the table. You know, we express who we are, who we've been, who we hope to be. All of these things are wrapped up in the foods that we serve. And I, and I was front row seat tasting, you know, these new lives being created. So the power of food was always was instilled in me so very early on. Uh, also, the deliciousness of seafood was instilled in me very early on. Just we were that close to the Chesapeake Bay and its wonderful bounty. And it was no you know accident that I then became a chef years on. And that idea of the power of food just stuck with me. And I began to ask, really, what is the purpose of food? Uh, in, in my restaurants, what am I really hoping to accomplish other than, you know, sort of the typical sort of egotistical chef, like I want to be the best. It's like, yes, well, I actually want to accomplish something real through my plates uh, and to explore the the role that chefs play in a larger community, in a larger dialogue. Uh, and when it came to what I wanted to put on the plate, it was seafood. And where I was getting that seafood became an, an issue of concern. And I was surrounded by chefs like Nora Puyon, uh, you know, a leader and really pioneer in the organics food movement who was very early on engaged with sustainable seafood. And so I had these incredible mentors that showed me that our choices as chefs matter and that we can really harm the environments uh, through the choices we make. But we can also really harm our bodies through the choices we make. 
Uh, and I took this standpoint that, wow, that's great. Because the other side of that coin is we can heal and we can restore through the choices we make. And so that's sort of set off. I guess that's been the guiding light of my career and its trajectory maybe hasn't seemed linear necessarily, but it's certainly all been about at the end of the day, uh, using seafood to better our relationship with the environment and also our health. You know, Barton, we are, <clears throat> sustainability is such a hot topic right now. And we also know that seafood is so healthy, great source of, of protein, could have, depending on the, the type of seafood, could have a lot of that heart-healthy omega-3 fatty acids. Yet the American public is not getting enough of it. So we need to be eating more seafood, at least, you know, what was it, eight ounces at least a week and you know, of seafood. But we're really, we're caught on many issues. So one of them is sustainability, and the other issue is how the heck do you prepare it? And I'm going to get, I'm going to nail you on that one at the end of this episode, because that's what people really want to hear about. But let's just talk about the sustainability piece for a moment. I love the fact that you were in Washington, D.C. around all these cultures, because I'm very big in embracing cultures and, you know, where they come from and the foods that they love, which, of course, is a lot of seafood for a lot of cultures. So tell me, explain to everybody, what is aquaculture? Ah, okay. Well, aquaculture is the farming of fish and shellfish and algaes, you know, sea vegetables. And, well, it's relatively new, something that most people don't understand. You know, fisheries is... I, maybe humans' oldest industry. Uh, you know, there's a lot of thinking in science that says it is by eating the omega-3s uh, in seafood uh, that we find evidence of in the caves along South Africa. It basically, it was the discovery of, or the harnessing of fire and the eating of seafood omega-3s, which basically sort of shifted our evolutionary path and by which we became human. So fisheries, are so important. They're so embedded in who we are. Nine percent of our brains, in fact, is is DHA, is omega threes. Are those fatty acids? It's that essential to literally the essence of our beings. And so, fisheries is this long held industry, long understood industry to to many. Uh, and aquaculture is our steps forward to do what we have long done for ten thousand years on land to now farm in the oceans. You know, we planted the seeds of modern society 10,000 years ago with agriculture and really just about 60 years ago did we plant the, the fish, I guess, of, of the modern aquaculture era. And it's this wonderful, confusing, contentious thing that really is ours to architect. And we are as witness now to really its beginning. And it's it's this really exciting thing because we are at the precipice, this crucible where we can decide what do we want this food system, aquaculture, to be? And what do we want it purposed with? Right. You know, this is so important because we want, you hear sustainability and, and you hear two sides. They say, only eat wild caught seafood and don't eat farm raised or whatever. I know that's incorrect. And I want it from the horse's mouth. You are the horse. So tell us exactly here, what is the difference between wild caught and farm raised? And especially when it comes to sustainability. Uh, when it comes to sustainability, first and foremost, I think we need to look at seafood as how we use it, which in America, and assuming most of the people that are going to listen to this with us here, uh, we use seafood as the center of the plate. 
And therefore, we need to look at it as in, in sustainability terms as opposed to other things we put at the center of the plate. Beef, pork, chicken, lamb, veal, turkey, goat, uh, etc. Land animals, right? And when we do so, across five very important sustainability metrics from greenhouse gas emissions, freshwater use, antibiotic use, feed conversion ratio, meaning how much food do we put into the system to take food out, and land use alterations, meaning how much rainforest do we plow under to plant soybeans to feed you know, to the fish. Across all five of those metrics, seafood comes out on top or on par with the very best of land animal responsibly produced. And so when it comes to sustainability, if you are going to eat an animal protein, make it seafood. Just bottom line is seafood sort of has a fin up in the sustainability game across the board. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot of detail within the very complicated category of seafood to address. But the bottom line is we need to be choosing seafood, just saying seafood is what's for dinner, for environment and for public health reasons. And when it comes to the difference between aquaculture and wild capture, the bottom line is it's all seafood. There is unsustainable wild and sustainable wild. There is unsustainable farmed and sustainable farmed. But the bottom line is we need to choose seafood. We need to trust retailers uh, who have largely done a very good job in the past decade plus of really making available great quality, sustainable products for us. And you know, there's, there's great sources out there that we can look to uh, in order to, to help us make those decisions. But first and foremost, decide that seafood is for dinner. Okay. All right. Let's make believe we did, did that. First of all, you convinced me I love seafood. I'm Italian. Like anything that's swimming works for me. So how can wild be sustainable or not sustainable? There's a number of ways about this. And, you know, it is a dynamic, ever-changing ecosystem that is highly complex. Oceans are I mean, this amazing entire biome to their own. Uh, so you can drag a net through the water. I mean, there, there's a, a number of ways by which something can be unsustainable. It can damage habitat, meaning... While trying to capture the fish, you drag a net across coral reefs and destroy them, thus destroying habitat for fish. You can dredge up eelgrass or mangroves to plant shrimp farms, which are, well, that, that's aquaculture, but, you know, or damage habitat for fish where the juveniles, you know, go uh, and spawning happens. Uh, you can take more fish from the ocean than are needed to sustainably maintain that stock. That's called overfishing. There's a number of other ways and small details, but really those are the two big ones uh, when it comes to the sustainability of wild capture fish. And there's a lot that we can do within that space. And there's a lot of very sustainable methods of catching seafood as well. It's hard to just sort of wave a wand and say this entire category is, should be off limits uh, or even this entire region should be off limits. And that's where the confusion comes in. And also just with the number of species. How many species of chicken have you eaten? You know, how many species of beef have you eaten? Okay, maybe like with pork recently. Okay, fine. There's like five heirloom varieties. But, but what about cod and haddock and hake and cusk and ling and monk and skate and wolf and dog and eel and ray and pout and place and dabs and witchbacks and flounders? And I mean, I could go on, right? And these are all just flaky white flesh fish from New England. And all of them have their own little details to them around the sustainability of it. So it gets complex. So if I'm hearing correctly, that wild can be sustainable or not, but then let's go to farmed. So farm can be sustainable or not. So, you know, I've heard some 
wonderful things recently about they have changed farm fishing and, and what they have done. So can you explain to everybody first? I think I think everybody understands what wild is. You know, you go out, boat, fish, net, get it, got it. But what is farmed? Because that people don't understand that. And how can it be sustainable or not sustainable? Yeah. First and foremost, uh, to the listener, just you know, close your eyes and put yourself on a small family farm you know, in America. Like we, we get this, right? The undulating hills bathed in autumn splendor, setting sun, the perfectly patterned rows of corn leading the eye off towards the red barn with its color fading the White House, you know, and picket fence. Like, right, we get it. We get it, right? Okay, you plant seeds and they grow and we harvest them. Or you put cows on the land and they grow and we harvest them. Okay, so now just, you know, still with your eyes closed, picture yourself on a dock and picture like a small area of the ocean that's been cordoned off. And in it, we put baby salmon and then they grow and we harvest them. You know, and maybe where we're doing in the species are new, but this is not a new concept. So first and foremost, I think let's just start from that familiar. Aquaculture has been around for thousands of years. Aquaculture as a industry, as a global industry that really feeds people outside of the immediate region is only 60 years old. You know, the first salmon net pen, which is sort of the, I guess, the archetype of aquaculture that we, as we understand it, the first salmon net pen went into the water 60 years ago. You know, trout farms, which have been around for a very long time, only exploded in the 1980s in terms of production. Farmed catfish in America only started in the mid-1980s. Uh, shrimp farming, same thing around mid-1980s. So a lot of the issues that we started out with in this new system, we got wrong. We were farming maybe species that were not the best to be farmed, uh, that required a lot of inputs, meaning a lot of fish in for a little bit of fish out. Uh, we didn't know what stocking densities, meaning how many fish can swim in this pen before they get sick. And there's just too many of them and disease vectors. You know, we were letting a lot of feed, you know, fall down to the bottom just because we didn't know what fish actually needed. So we've had 10,000 years to figure out you know, pigs and cows and chickens and goats. And we've had 60 years to figure out salmon. And guess what? We figured it out. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I figured because, you know, you, you look very smart. Yeah, so you figured it out. And so I think that's what's important. I want my listeners and viewers, because now we're on YouTube, to, to understand that, you know, you're right. Maybe in the beginning they got it wrong in some things, but but let's not keep reading old emails or old articles about this. And let's step up to what's been done now to help produce enough fish, you know, to, to feed everyone, you know. If if everybody really followed the dietary guidelines for Americans, which is to have at the minimum two fish meals a week, if everyone did that, there wouldn't be enough fish. It's wild fish. You'd have to really make sure that if everyone came on board to make sure that there's enough farm and fish in a sustainable way to do that. And we know nutritionally it's similar. There's no difference in nutrition and protein, and there may be some in omega-3s, depending if it's wild or, or farm-raised. Can you address that? Again, getting back to that sort of opening statement, eat seafood, please. <laughs> you know, that's the right thing to do. Are there some differences? Yes, between, let's say, between farm salmon and wild salmon. 
uh, a, a wild king salmon might have 1,850 milligrams of omega-3s, while, whereas a farmed Atlantic salmon might have 1,250 milligrams. Well, great, because our government hopes that we get about 700 milligrams per week. So four ounces of either of those and you're way over the budget. There's also you know, wild salmon that, like pink salmon, that have about 700 milligrams. So there's this wide disparity in nature. Are the quality, the biological qualities of those omega-3s exactly the same? Yes, they are. They're exactly the same. In terms of those quantities, okay, it all varies. Uh, in terms of you know things like the color that's added to salmon, okay, these are naturally occurring astaxanthins and carotenoids that occur in nature that the salmon eat through krill and other things, and they bioaccumulate it and their flesh becomes red. So we've synthesized this and molecularly, it's the exact same thing that we put into farm salmon. Is there maybe a very slight antioxidant difference there? Yes, maybe, but not enough to cause concern. I've, I've looked for the science and not found it. And there's not enough concern about the differences to say that we should really be angling our, our, our seafood choices. Bottom line is just choose seafood. And some of the new novel feeds, like we're now feeding uh, farmer's salmon fermented algae uh, that was first developed by NASA uh, to figure out how to you know, put astronauts on long-term voyages and how to grow food on, on the, the ships. Wow, wow, very cool. And now the salmon that are coming out of that have super elevated omega-3 levels. So there, there's just so much to figure out, so much cool stuff happening. And, and to me, it's just this really exciting food way that... As, as I said earlier, we have we are witness to its creation. Right, you know, while sustainability is a very is a hot topic and people are, are aware of it, which it should be, what's happened in the last year, price is a really really critical part of what people buy. So you know, we we saw that fish actually went up during the pandemic consumption, but but we're looking at price now, and and this is price no matter it's toilet paper or turkey or whatever it is, it's price. All comes down to price. So is one you know typically less expensive, or does it you know whether it's wild or farm, or just price comes as price? It depends. So seafood is the most globally traded food commodity, more than double corn and soy combined. There's 2,000 or so species that uh, trade hands. Uh, so there's going to be such disparity in there. And wild capture seafood uh, you know, goes in these boom-bust cycles, meaning there's no Alaska salmon fishery right now. But in September, you know, August through October, let's say, there's 85 million sockeye salmon streaming into Bristol Bay. Whoa! Uh, do you think it's cheaper in September? Well, Yes, <laughs> you know, so certainly that that sort of periods of abundance dictate price to a large extent. But one of the great things about seafood that that I've really come to embrace and that I did not at first was the quality of frozen seafood. You know, frozen seafood used to be a last step before it spoiled. So you take less than pristine fish and you put it in a poor quality freezer and you end up with an even lesser quality. It, it, you know, but that was better than putting in a trash can, I guess. Now, fish and seafood are being processed and frozen so close to the point of capture or of farming that they're locking in pristine quality. And with methodologies of deep, deep freezing that help protect the cellular structure so you don't get that exudation and moisture loss, guess what? 
that evens out the supply chain and takes this highly perishable item and makes it not so perishable. And once you reduce loss within a system, you get a much more honest pricing. So if the fresh counter is too expensive, I, I get it. And there, there's some reasons for that. Uh, I would argue the fish isn't expensive. It's rationally priced. It's the other animal proteins that are irrationally cheap. That's maybe a whole show. But, uh, you know, if the fresh counter is a little too expensive, then check out the frozen, check out the canned aisles because there's great value, great quality, great healthful products there. Absolutely. I mean, you were totally spot on about this. Let me tell you, canned tuna. Hello. I lived on canned tuna growing up, and now you have it in the pouches as such. Uh, and frozen, I have in my freeze at all time frozen shrimp and frozen scallops. And guess what? On a Wednesday, when there's like, you know, nothing in the refrigerator, I'm pulling out those babies and I'm having scallops on a Wednesday. And they are fabulous. They are really, really fabulous. So I agree with you that, you know, stockpile, just like I'm always saying about frozen vegetables, that, you know, picked and frozen at peak. So the nutrition is there. So now we can say the same thing about uh, seafood. And, and if I could, if I could add to that and maybe seg segueing into, into cooking that I think might, might be coming up next. But I want to point out something, which is this little baby, the toaster oven. So I take seafood. I don't even bother thawing it. You know, pieces of, of thick cod or halibut or salmon that I've got in the freezer. I just did this the other day for a demo for folks. I took it straight from frozen salt. I threw it in the toaster oven at 280 degrees for half an hour directly out of the freezer. And it came out so moist, so succulent, so beautiful, all of that flavor still in there. So talk about a convenience food. And yeah, it takes half an hour, but guess what? Have a glass of wine with your partner, you know? <laughs> Talk about how your day was. And also, you know, uh, for those time impaired, I'm not doing anything to those scallops. I'm not doing anything to, to that salmon filet that's frozen. That baby's all ready to roll. So, so you know, I love that. The less I have to use a knife in the kitchen, the better for me on a weekday. So let's get into this because this is really important because I think a lot of people are afraid to make seafood. So give us your top five tips. And then you just gave us one with cod in the toaster oven. I absolutely love that. Quick ways that people can feel they're nervous about making it. They don't want to dry it out. So give them four other tips of how you can cook seafood and make it fabulous. So that cook from frozen technique right there, but low and slow across the board is a really great way to go. Even if you're talking about fresh fish, throwing a piece of fresh salmon in the oven at 300 degrees, yeah, it takes 18, 20 minutes. But here's two benefits from it. The time it takes to go from raw to cooked is, is a long, right? Is a long time. The time it takes to go from cooked to overcooked is also a rather long time. So you've got a lot of leeway in there. A lot of leeway. Time to get your broccoli and your brown rice and everything else going or just talk to your partner or, you know, deal with your kids. I got a two-year-old and a six-year-old. So time impaired. I like that. I heard that loud and clear. The other thing is people complain that like, oh, I don't cook fish because my house smells. Have you ever cooked a hamburger? Your house stinks. You ever cooked bacon? Your house smells pretty good, but it stinks. So that's about getting over our you know, sort of intentions around it. But slow cooking doesn't particulate. It doesn't aerate the food. And so it doesn't send up the, the smells into the air. And so it, it really minimizes that. A couple other techniques that I have is I've got some really nice uh, heavy bottomed saute pans, like a cast iron pan. So we're not talking expensive, like a lodge pan here. I get it smoking hot on the, on the stove 
And again, I'm going back to the toaster oven here. So if you haven't caught on to this yet, folks, I'm, I'm a fan of the toaster oven. I get it screaming hot on the stove. I'll throw in a good glug of olive oil, a couple of cloves of garlic, and a pint or two of cherry tomatoes. Turn, depends on how many people I'm, I'm feeding here. And I roll them around. And as soon as they start to blister, I put a piece of fish on top and I throw the whole thing under the broiler. Best works with skin on fish. So you've got some protection over the moisture, but then it basically tomato steamed from the bottom. The skin gets crispy. The olive oil and tomato juice and garlic get all sexy, happy together. And guess what? Here you go. There's your entire meal. You know, you got a rice maker going on. There you go. What about, you said slow and low. What about crock pot? Yeah, you know, I don't, I just, I have never cooked with a crock pot, but so I don't actually know anything about that or, or an air fryer even. You know, I'm one of the seven people in the pandemic that didn't buy an air fryer, <laughs> but. Um, My hand is raised. Okay, now what about the grill, outside grill? It stops with the whole house issue. So what is the best way, or is there certain seafood that's great on the grill? Almost all seafood is great on the grill. Things like cod, flounder uh, tend not to be. They can take on somewhat of a tinny flavor when you get that live live fire. Plus, they're also so lean, you know, 3% fat or so in cod, flounder, just a little bit higher than that, as opposed to salmon, where you're up at 15%. Uh, shrimp are great on the grill. Salmon's great on the grill. Just about everything is, is great on the grill, but you want to go for those slightly not the leanest of categories. Plus, those are also the flakiest of categories. And it can be troublesome. But here's my tip on, on cooking on the grill, no matter what you're cooking. Two heat zones. Okay, so I'm, I am a live fire guy. So I cook exclusively over wood or charcoal. Uh, I've got a five foot wide Argentine grill that I built in the backyard. So you can do this on a gas grill too. So when you start it off, put all of your coals on one side. It's called indirect grilling. All your coals on one side or turn this burner onto high and this one onto low. Before you put your seafood onto the grill, have a plan to get your seafood off of the grill. So if you've got this long trout filet, right, and you've got your grates running this way and you put your trout over here, what are you gonna have to do? You're gonna have to get it off the grill for each grate, as opposed to grill grates, trout filet, good, done, right? So here's the tip about cooking then. Put it first over your hottest part until you get a little bit of crisp, a little bit of crust, about three minutes or so. And then everybody's like, oh, it's, it's going to stick and oh, it's going to you know fall apart and all that. Here's the thing. So on a charcoal grill, pick up the whole grate and put it down. Don't move the fish, move the grate, right? Now you've got it over the low part. On your gas grill, great. So you didn't have a grill over here. So pick it up off this one, just put the whole grate down over here and then close the lid. Put a lid on. What you've done is created ambient heat now. So that fire is coming up and circulating over that. It's still skin side down, you haven't flipped it. So it's getting all the protection on the moisture. It's getting all that texture from the crisping and it's cooking low and slow, perfectly up. And then you take it off the grill. You've now touched it twice. Once onto the grill, once off the grill. It doesn't fall apart. It's perfectly cooked. It gives you time. Plus, you've now got this hot spot on your grill to put your broccoli or your asparagus or your squash or whatever else you're cooking. There you go. And you can also get one of those those pans, right? Those fish pans. Like It's like a mesh or something. And you can move the same thing, same thing. Do that. Okay. All right. Last one. Microwave. Can you can you cook in the microwave? Or what are you thinking? Microwave uh, is the only battle that uh, my wife has lost in our marriage. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I just, I, I, I am not a fan of microwaves, but uh, yeah, so I, I've got nothing for you on there because I, I use I use a toaster oven. 
you know, I, I like the other day I, I reheated something and I just put it on the toast setting and I reheated a piece of cod that we had in the fridge. So, um, yeah, instead of buying something new or most people have a microwave. So sorry, I'm a little ignorant over there on that end. Okay, so now I'm gonna I'm gonna embarrass you, but I don't really care. So uh, people have uh, always want good seafood recipes. So something tells me you might have written a book or two. Oh boy! Well, I was I was hoping you would ask that. Okay, so what is that? What's the best of seafood? So this is my most recent book, and thank you for asking. I appreciate the support. Uh, the joy of seafood. So almost a thousand recipes for almost a hundred different species. This book, um, my most recent one, is really meant to be your Tuesday night go-to. Uh, it's meant to go to the store, pick whatever is freshest and best, you know, trust the person behind the counter, and then bring it home and figure out what to do with it then. Because most of these recipes involve a reasonably stocked pantry. Do you have white wine? Do you have a lemon? Do you have some mustard? Great. That's more than half the recipes. So you have just given me joy because I'm going as soon as I end this episode, I'm going on Amazon and I'm getting the joy of seafood by Barton Seaver. He's a, a top notch chef and now just a connoisseur and just so passionate about seafood sustainability. We all need to be eating more. Now we all know that whether it's wild or farmed, uh, just eat it. You know, get it on sale, get it frozen, get it, but just eat it. And that's going to be our take-home message. And I am getting the joy of seafood. I am getting that for myself for Mother's Day. In fact, I'm getting it now. What do I care? Okay, Mr. Barton Seaver, thank you so much for coming on Spot On. You are so very welcome. I appreciate being here. So if I could just summarize one last little message. Go ahead. The three S's of public health. Wear your seatbelt, don't smoke, and eat seafood. It's that simple. <laughs> there you go. Love it. I am going to hashtag that. We're going to put a hashtag that. All right, sir. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?